Hey, everybody. Welcome to the review for our Congress and Courts test. Uh, it has been moved from Friday the 5th to Monday the 8th because of our uh, Atlanta Braves World Series championship uh, parade celebration. So go Braves. Um, it was fun to watch. I'm glad I can start sleeping. Uh, back to my normal sleep schedule now. Anyways, let's get to the review. So the review is on E-Class. I also gave you a paper copy on Thursday uh, in class. Uh, but if you lost that or need it or something like that, it is on E-Class in the activity feed. So uh, look for it there. Uh, all right. So first off, let's start with Fed 78. Now, I told you in class on Thursday, I did mess up on the review. Uh, I do change the test uh, from year to year. <clears throat> and so I added this Fed 78 question and I messed up and I added it uh, as the first question. So it's in the legislative branch when it should be in the judicial branch. So just keep that in mind that Fed 78 does pertain to the judicial branch. So first off, uh, remember that the anti-federalists, you know, they had their complaints about the new federal government. One of those was, or I should maybe not complain, but a fear was that the federal judiciary was going to be way overpowered. The, the argument was, hey, you've got these judges who do not face election. They're being appointed for life and they're going to be able to do whatever they want to. Uh, and just have way too much power, way too much authority. Uh, and, you know, you're saying, hey, separation of powers, but you've got this group over here who does not face any consequences from the electorate. That's too much. And so Hamilton is going to write a series of uh, judicial federalist papers. He wrote six of them. Uh, this being the kind of the keynote one. Uh, and his, his argument is that, hey, yeah, they're going to have some power, but they are going to be the weakest of the three branches. They don't have the power of the, the purse. They don't have the money. Congress controls the budget. Congress controls the money appropriations. So where are they going to get their funding for any of this power they're supposed to have? And then the military, you know, they don't control that. That's controlled by the president. So where are they going to get the backing from? In fact, he goes on to write, hey, you know, they have all this power, but guess what? They have to rely on Congress and the presidency to do any of the enforcement of their decisions. So yes, they're going to have the power of judicial uh, of, of judgment and things like that, but they have no power behind that. Uh, redistricting. So remember, redistricting comes with the census, all right? And the census dictates the uh, apportionment of our congressional seats, our House seats. And the 435 number on the House side is set. So within that 435, we do have movements because of uh, some states losing, some states gaining seats. If a state gains seats, that means another state lost seats. Uh, and that's the reapportionment part of it. Okay. Because population shifts happen within a state and maybe don't lead to reapportionment, new uh, house seats, uh, you still can redistrict to try and balance out the, the districts. Remember, the goal is to have somewhere between 700 and 900,000 people per representative. Um, if we could all be equal, that'd be great, but the goal is to have somewhere in that number. So redistricting does happen uh, even in states that don't reapportion. So Georgia is not gonna get new seats. We also didn't lose seats, but we will change the districts around a little bit to adjust for the population shifts. So redistricting is just the redrawing of lines. So you know, Gwinnett, our district, District 7, uh, will probably get redrawn a little bit to adjust for some of the population movements that have happened, okay? And remember, it's done by the state legislatures. It is not, most people 
if you walk down the streets, walk down the halls of the of the school, most people are going to probably say redistricting is done by the federal government. But that's not the case. It is done by the state legislatures. Uh, pork barrel legislation. So pork barrel. Remember, this is uh, all the different things. Uh, you know, we we point to money a lot of times, but it could be anything. It could be uh, some kind of work project, uh, some kind of building project, whatever that might bring money and resources to a congressperson's district or state. All right. So uh, it is any number of things that's going to benefit really only that person's district. I use the example of let's build some parks here in Gwinnett County. Benefits nobody else in the country, nobody else in the state, really. Okay, but it's going to benefit Gwinnett because it's going to provide green space for the citizens. It's also going to create jobs, so bring in some money and things like that. House Rules Committee. Uh, So the Rules Committee, once again, is the most important committee that's out there. All right. Remember, it's only on the House side, Uh, whereas most every other committee gets legislation as it comes into the House. So H.R. Bill 1 goes to Standing Committee blank. H.R. Bill 2 goes to Standing Committee blank. None of those bills go right to the Rules Committee. They go to the Rules Committee after they have gone to those other committees and they've been voted on there. All right. So the Rules Committee gets them before they go to the full House. And the Rules Committee, they don't they have the power to to adjust them. But the main things they do is they're going to set the agenda for them. So, hey, we're going to debate them on this date and we're going to debate them for this long. These are the people that will talk. Hey, it's going to be an open uh, open bill or a closed bill, meaning they can add amendments or not add amendments to it. They can really, I don't want to say sabotage, but they can make a bill almost unpassable within the Rules Committee. So it's a huge deal and a lot of power and a lot of importance there uh, for the, the, the Rules Committee. They really get to, to just set the agenda for a bill. Uh, the House and Senate differences. There's a lot of differences. Um, you know, the biggest, I, and I'm not going to get into the, the 435 versus 100 and, and things like that. That's stuff you should know. Uh, but just, you know, the main thing to remember is that the, the House is much more uh, formal than the Senate. There's a lot more rules and regulations and those sorts of things. Uh, filibuster and enclosure. So filibuster, remember, is a Senate only thing, and it happens because the Senate has unlimited debate, unlike the House. Remember, the House has all those rules we just talked about. Uh, so the filibuster is a part as a minority party tool. When there is a bill that you want to, to try and stop, one of the tools you can use is to, to talk, talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. The goal, you know, we, we sometimes say to kill it, uh, but the goal is to just delay it. The more you can delay that bill, the more you delay other bills behind it. And eventually it's going to get backed up. And you know, they have a lot of stuff they have to do. They can't just concentrate on this one thing for three months or whatever the time frame might be. So the filibuster is a powerful tool for the minority uh, to use. And it's where they debate and use that that power um, to, to debate an issue to death, kind of. Uh, or at least I shouldn't say death but to try and delay action on everything else. Now, you can stop it. If you have 60 members behind you, you can make a cloture motion. A cloture motion is a motion to end debate. So that's why it ends the filibuster, because the filibuster, you're debating, 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 debating. So I make a cloture motion that we end debate and we vote now. All right. You got to got got to have 60. 
That's why if uh, well, either party ever has 60 members of the of the Senate, it's considered a supermajority because you can do whatever you want to. Someone from the minority party gets up and starts talking about a bill, trying to filibuster it. They don't even get two sentences out. And you're like, hey, I want a cloture. And you end the, end the debate right there and you'll vote on the issue. So uh, it's it, I don't I don't foresee anybody getting 60 for a while, uh, but it is a powerful tool. Uh, role of the speaker of the House and responsibility. So once again, the speaker is the only uh, excuse me, is the is only on the House side. There is no speaker of the Senate. So please don't ever say that. Um, I, I might to, to thump you if you ever say there's a speaker of the Senate because there's no such thing. It's only on the House side. All right. Uh, and the speaker is the most powerful position in all of Congress. They run the House. OK, when I say they run the House, I mean, they run it. They set the agenda. They'll work with the Rules Committee. All right. Because remember, they're from they're both the majority party. So they're going to work together to set the agenda for bills. They'll set the debate schedule. They put people on committees. Uh, they have all kinds of power. OK, they have all kinds of power. They uh, will put you on the committees that you're going to be on. Um, and they have they'll you know, they, they work with the, the party. They, if, if, the, if the president is from the same party, they work with them. Uh, just a, a lot of stuff goes into the, the, the speaker role there. All right. So uh, just, and they're also the, the next person in line of, um, uh, for president. You know, after the vice president, it goes to the speaker. Now, they can't get into some trouble there because if a speaker was to ever be super young, which probably is not going to happen, but you never know. Um, then, you know, they might, because you only have to be 25 to be in the House. So you could run into a situation where you have a um, speaker that's you know, 30 years old that's not eligible to be the president. So, but I don't think that'll ever happen because I don't think we'll ever have anybody that's young, that young, uh, as the speaker. Because it is kind of a, hey, here's my time that I've served here in the House, and that's why I deserve this spot. Okay. Uh, all right. Delegate versus trustee model. So, um, the delegate is going to do whatever their constituents want, right? So the delegate model is going to, to do, uh, whatever, even if I'm against it, my constituents want it. The trustee is going to take everything into account. Hey, this is what my constituents want. This is what I believe. And they're going to vote with what they believe. All right. So the trustee versus the delegate, uh, the delegate will probably stay in an office longer than the trustee. Trustee, if you vote against your constituents over and over and over again, they'll eventually realize it and they will vote you out of office. Uh, the four types of committees and committee work. So you had four types. You had standing, you have joint, select, and conference. All right. So a standing committee, these are those permanent committees that last from session to session. They, um, like I, I think I've told you, the rules committee has been around since 1790 or so. So it's been around for a long time. Right. And uh, standing committees get created and then they, they last. Um, the select committees, these are committees that are created for special purposes on the House side and on the Senate side. There is no they don't join together. There is not a House and Senate select committee. It is the House select committee or the Senate select committee. And it can be on any number of topics. Typically, it's an investigative uh, body. Uh, for example, Watergate had a House Select Committee. Uh, campaign Finance Reform had a Senate Select Committee. Uh, these typically lead to some kind of reform within their investigation. 
right? And they can last from session to session, but they're not permanent. So eventually the select committee is going to go away, although it can last from you know, three, four, five sessions. The joint committee is a joint committee. It is House and Senate, committee, uh, Senate members combined, and they're typically going to kind of release some kind of report. Uh, I gave you the example of the 9-11 report. Um, so they will join together and they will do release their findings, basically. And then finally, is the conference committee. This only happens when the House and the Senate pass different versions of a similar bill. Uh, the president cannot sign two different versions. They have to be the same. And so the conference committee will come together from the House and the Senate, and they will meet and work out uh, the differences. The committee work, you just got to understand that the committee is where all of the um, the work on a bill takes place. The work on a bill, once it gets to the House floor or the Senate floor, the work's already been done. It's already been kind of set. So uh, they do uh the work on bills they do the work in the investigations uh, oversight and all that sort of stuff all right what happens in committees and subcommittees so kind of lead into this um remember every bill is going to go before a committee they will do two things they work on legislation and they do oversight which is the next thing there uh as far as the bills go so every bill pertains to some subject area it will be assigned to the committee that deals as closely as possible to that subject area. So they're not going to send an education bill to the agricultural committee. All right. And the people on those committees are supposed to be experts. Now, as expert as they can be as someone who's coming from a different profession, all right, but they are supposed to, to at least have an idea, obviously of what's going on for that reason though, whenever a bill comes before them, and they get assigned to work on it, whether it's in the committee or the subcommittee. They will have investigative hearings. They will, uh, maybe not investigative, but they're going to do research. And they're going to call in experts from industry, from interest groups, from uh, lobbyists to come in uh, and talk about these bills. And, and they will factor in those discussions, what they're going to do with the bill. Maybe it needs work. Maybe it needs to die. I don't know. You know, It just depends on what the, the experts have to say. Um, but that's what's going to happen in the committee. They can make changes to the bill. They can pass it as is. They can completely kill it uh, by just letting it sit uh, and all those sorts of things. The other thing they do is oversight. Now, oversight is where they call in. Uh, they can call in bureaucratic agents. Uh, they can call in private citizens. And oversight is that watchdog function. So the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, uh, is tasked with protecting the environment. Congress passed an environmental law. The EPA is not enforcing that law. Maybe they get called in and questioned, why aren't you enforcing this law? And that could result in a new law, change to the EPA's policies, or, or whatever might happen. They can call in private citizens. In class, I gave you the example of Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook. He got called in a couple of three years ago about the data uh, breaches and privacy for people. Okay, They just called in the oil, oil execs. Uh, about some of the environmental uh, issues that happen with with the drilling for oil and things like that. So they can call in and, and they have the power of almost like a courtroom because you're under oath when you go testify before them. All right. Uh, and the oversight hearings can lead to all kinds of things happening to your agency or your industry or whatever it might be uh, because of that stuff. The committee chair, the committee chair is going to be the person uh, from the majority party. All right. Uh, chosen by the, the speaker. Uh, and worked on by the majority party leader on the uh, 
the Senate side. Uh, but they run the, the committee, just like the Speaker of the House runs the, the House, uh, the committee chairs, they are in charge of the committee. And they, uh, they get to set the agenda. They get to decide, hey, this bill is going to get talked about. This bill is not going to get talked about. Um, so they have a lot of power and it's in a very important position. All right. And you're also expected to work with the leadership of your party uh, on whichever side you're in. Constituency influence. Remember, we are the constituents. Okay. So we are the constituents. And um, we really dictate. I mean, you know, I get frustrated with Congress because sometimes I don't feel like they're working for us, but they do what. I mean, they, they have to do what their constituency wants, because if they don't do what their constituency constituency wants, they don't get voted back into office. So there is that issue uh, that they have and that they run into that they really got to work uh, very hard with or for um, their um, their constituents. OK, uh, so it's uh, yeah. Uh, differences between the House and the Senate. We already did that. Just you know, remember, the House is much more formal. Impeachment process, we've done this a couple of times, so I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on it here in this review, but there is a question on the test. It is an oversight thing, or excuse me, a check and balance that the, uh, whatever they're called, the uh, Congress has over the President, and that is uh, a simple majority from the House on articles of impeachment, whatever they might be. Any congressman, any House member can draw up the articles of impeachment. Uh, and then they get voted on potentially by the, the full House, simple majority. Get, then it goes to the Senate, and the Senate has a trial. You need to have two-thirds of the senators say, yes, we want to kick this person out. Standing committees, we've already kind of talked about, so I'm not going to spend time there. Uh, those are those permanent committees. Conference committees, we've already talked about. I'm not going to spend time there. Uh, congressional checks on the Supreme Court. Five-A lunch is now over. All right. Uh, so the um, congressional checks on the Supreme Court. Remember, and you did this in the assignment that we did in class on Wednesday and Thursday uh, to kind of wrap up the, the congressional stuff. Remember that uh, Congress can do a couple of things if they're, uh, you know, if they're upset with the uh, what's it called uh, with uh, the courts. Um now, one of the big things they have is they get to the Senate gets to confirm all judicial appointments. But beyond that, uh, remember, they can create legislation that gets around uh, Supreme Court decisions. Uh, if they wanted to, they could create an amendment. And remember, an amendment is court proof. The courts have no say so there. Uh, we said they control the or not control, but they have to confirm all appointments. Um, they can also redistrict. And when I say redistrict, I'm not talking about congressional lines. I'm talking about the courtrooms. You know, the federal district courts, there's 94 of them. They're all districted within the United States and the territories. Congress has the power and the ability to, to control that. If they want to reduce the number or change the number or change the districts, they can do that. So they have some things they can do over uh, the, the courts. Uh, closed versus open rule. This is on the House side, remember. Uh, the... Closed rule means that you can't add amendments to a bill. Open rule means that you can. 
Redistricting solutions, a lot of you came up with this solution when I asked you in that virtual museum to fix the problem of redistricting. How do we make it fair? And a lot of you said, hey, let's bring in an independent agency. And so that's probably one of the big things that uh, could be done is to give this over to some kind of group or agency or something like that that is not going to have political ties and have no, uh, no real reason to... Um, to redistrict, uh, to try and make the districts so that I can win next go around as well. Uh, Baker versus Carr is a redistricting case. Remember, this was up in Tennessee. Tennessee had not redistricted since 1920. This is now 1960. So the districts had swelled in population. So some places, some people uh, were being underrepresented because of the population numbers. And so uh, Baker, I'm pretty sure it was Baker, uh, is basically, for lack of a better word, going to sue, saying, hey, Tennessee needs to be redistricted. And so that's where the court comes from, and they come up with the, the, the principle of one person, one vote. Basically, hey, you've got this one county, Shelby, Shelby County, that is basically underrepresented now because the population has shifted. And now there's, you know, uh, a million people in this one county with one representative versus that rural county over there, that rural district, where there's only 200,000 people. They're being overrepresented. All right, so, so that's Baker versus Carr. All right, getting into the... Uh, Federal judiciary, and this is the stuff we did very quickly, but original versus appellate, original jurisdiction, remember, is just the first place your court, your your case is heard. So uh, if you break a federal law, you're going to go to a federal district court. That is original jurisdiction. The appellate court, this is appeals. They don't hear any kind of, uh, it's not a regular trial court. Right? There is no jury. There's no witnesses. There's no nothing like that. It is just them reviewing your appeal and the records from the previous court case. So original is the first traditional trial that you have. Appellate is when you are appealing the decisions from that original. Now, the Supreme Court does have both. Okay. The rule of four, Supreme Court, when they get to pick out their cases, remember, uh, if four people want to hear a case, they hear it. All right. Activism versus restraint. Uh, activism is a thought process for judges that they actively participate in policy making through their decisions. So they get a, a court case in front of them and they have a chance to kind of alter policy based on the decision they make and that they should actively try to make a decision that could make some fundamental changes. Restraint is where they're going to uh, not look to make those changes. They're going to just base their decisions based on what the constitution meant uh, what the Constitution says and what the Founding Fathers intended. You might see it sometimes as original intent. Appellate versus district court. Uh, it goes back to that original versus appellate jurisdiction we just talked about. Uh, the appellate court are the courts of appeals. They will only hear appeals. They will never hear a case first. And then um, the, what you call it, the uh, district court, they hear all the cases first. They, they, they have the most work cut out for them. Uh, amicus curiae briefs, those are those friends of the court letters that get written to the, uh, the courts whenever there's a, the Supreme Court, whenever there's an issue, a case that's going to be there uh, that matters to people. So if this abortion thing ever gets to them, they'll be getting pro-life letters, pro-choice letters saying, hey, this is why we think you should rule this way. Remember, it is a window to public uh, opinion because they are insulated from us. All right. So they are insulated from us as citizens. And so uh, the amicus curiae does give them an idea 
of what's out there. All right. Uh, let's see. Marbury versus Madison. Everybody should be familiar with Marbury versus Madison. I think this question is very low level, uh, but this is what created the judicial review stuff. And then finally, the court problems after the decision. Pretty simple because uh, we've talked about it a couple of times now. The, the decision uh, from uh, dang, John Marshall, okay, back in 1832 or whatever it was about the Cherokee, they won. But uh, Jackson said, hey, you made your decision. Now you come and enforce it. All right. Guys, if you have questions, as always, this is coming out via Remind Text. Feel free to uh, send me a Remind Text, and I will answer your questions on Sunday uh, if you need them. You can always uh, interact with me on the Twitter. Uh, the K Daniels AP Gov is available, as is the Collins Hill one that I run, chhsgov underscore civics. Uh, I will respond to either of those platforms. Guys, I hope you had a great weekend. If you went to the parade, that's awesome. Hope you had a good time. Um, go Braves, and I'll see you on Monday when we take this test. All right, guys, take care. Bye-bye.